I'm Amanda Olberg, Managing Editor of Education Next. We invite you to join this week's Education Next podcast, available online Wednesday morning each week at educationnext.org. It's often said that of the subjects taught in school, reading is first among equals, a prerequisite for success in any other area, especially as students move on to college. If that's the case, though, there's cause for concern. While the math achievement of American students has risen steadily in recent decades, especially in the early grades, reading scores have barely budged. What's behind those trends and what can teachers do about them? I'm Marty West, Associate Editor of Education Next, and joining me today are Doug Lamov, Colleen Driggs, and Erica Woolway, authors of the new book, Reading Reconsidered, A Practical Guide to Rigorous Literacy Instruction. Doug, Colleen, and Erica are all leaders of the Teach Like a Champion team at Uncommon Schools, where they work to design and implement teacher training programs based on the study of high-performing teachers. You can find an excerpt of their book at educationnext.org. Doug, Colleen, and Erica, congratulations on the new book, and thanks for taking the time to speak with me today. I'm already glad to be with you. Thanks so much for having us. Very glad to have you. So what led you all to write this book? Well, we definitely didn't want to, <laughs> but it kind of announced itself to us. Uh, kidding aside, you know, we were, we were thinking a lot about reading, and I think there are a lot of reasons to think a lot about reading, and it turned out that other people were thinking about it too. You know, some of the things that we've been thinking about were we spend a lot of time looking at data. And if you look at student achievement data, say in New York State, results on a typical New York State test correlate to socioeconomic status in reading one and a half to two times as much as they do in math. And so that what that tells us is that your ability to, your ability to participate in meritocracy is not as simple to, to, to uh, rise above the zip code that you were born to, is not as simple in reading as it is in math. And obviously, that's you know that's that's a fundamental issue for our country. But even beyond the its stronger effect with students of poverty, as you mentioned in your introduction, there's been what we describe as an SAT inversion sometime in the last 15 years. It used to be that our reading scores were higher than our math scores, and that's what everyone was worried about. But now our math scores are higher than our SAT scores, and so there's been a comparative drop in uh, in reading performance. And, you know, with the college professors that we spoke to in the course of writing this book, they describe a crisis in the making of students who can't do the reading that they need to do to succeed in college and students who don't do the type of reading they need to do. We don't do sustained, reflective, meditative reading for long, steady bouts like they used to be able to. And even, you know, even when we think about the joy of reading, which is something that's important to all three of us, you know, uh, we talk about the importance of that, that the rates of reading among teenagers are dropping precipitously. And so it's possible that the things that we say we're doing to instill a love of reading are not successfully doing that. And so, look, these are all really hard questions to answer, but we found ourselves thinking about it a lot. And at, at one point at a meeting, uh, we sometimes wish we hadn't gone to, and the head of our organization turned to us and said, you know, will you go figure out reading? And uh, And... So we set up to do what we like to do is just to study, you know, study top teachers and watch what they do. And one thing led to another, and we had a book. So, you know, a very common pattern in education research, very related to what you were just talking is about, is that lots of interventions, you know, whether it be attending a high-performing charter school or being assigned to a particularly effective teacher, 
will have a much larger effect on students' math achievement than on their reading achievement. Do you have any insight as to why that might be the case? When we think about reading, it's, it's so complex. If you ask students to respond to something uh, that they've read about what they've read in a passage, that a single assessment question can rely on such a myriad of skills um, that, are, that are actually happening simultaneously. And so if you think about that question at the most fundamental level, you want to know whether or not students comprehended the passage. And so that comprehension relies on, well, did they know the vocabulary in the passage? And um, were they able to unpack the syntax of the sentences in the passage? And if they're able to do that, do they actually have the background knowledge that's necessary to understand the passage? At an even more basic level than that, was students able to decode the passage? Or were the words in the passage so difficult for students that they took up most of their cognitive energy in just figuring out the words, and they didn't have the space left to figure out how those words actually strung together in a cohesive way to make meaning in a sentence or a paragraph or a book? And so in math, the skills are built in a much more linear and incremental way. But because of the complexity and number of skills involved in reading, it's sometimes harder to diagnose. And it's also harder sometimes to help students to catch up. Reading progress happens much more slowly over time, especially when we consider things like vocabulary and background knowledge, which really happen starting at home from birth. Um, and if students aren't sufficient in those areas, then it's going to take much longer than a year or two years or four years to catch up and to make the gains that they need to make. So that answer, I think, really highlights the scope of the challenge that you all took on in this book. So let's dig into its content a little bit. Um, the excerpt we've posted on the Ednex website focuses on challenge, the challenge of preparing students to read nonfiction text something many educators nationwide are wrestling with as their states transition to the Common Core. You write that the challenges students face in reading nonfiction are both a cause and an effect of the knowledge deficit. What do you mean by this? Well, I think one of the things that's surprising about reading is that if you look at research, there's a pretty clear correlation between your prior knowledge of the subject that you're reading about and your ability to comprehend it. So just to take a, uh, an example that's commonly used, baseball, if I give you a sentence, uh, Pedroia sacrificed Euclid in the third, his 100th RBI of the year. Are you a baseball fan, Marty? I am. Okay, so you probably know a lot about, you probably learned a lot from that sentence, and you probably know a lot about that sentence. For example, you know what team is playing, right? That's right, the Red Sox. And how's, uh, how, what kind of year is Pedroia having? Uh, he's doing pretty well if he's got 100 RBIs. Yeah, it's pretty great. So uh, you're a baseball fan. You understood the sentence. And not only did you understand the sentence, but you learned a lot more than, uh, than someone else who, let's say, is not a baseball fan and didn't pick up on the fact that Pedroia is having a great year or that the Red Sox were playing. It doesn't even know what a sacrifice means or that the sacrifice, the sacrifice implies probably that it was a fly ball, but possibly it was a bust. Uh, and so not only did you understand more of the sentence at the beginning, but the gap got wider in the course of your reading the sentence because you understood more of it, you learned more, you absorbed more knowledge from the sentence than a reader without strong background knowledge. And so there's been a lot of research that suggests that, you know, if you divide groups of strong readers into we and weak readers uh, into, into two separate groups and you give them passages based on content that they know and they don't know, actually the degree of knowledge that they 
often a stronger indicator of how well they'll do in comprehending the passage than their, quote, reading skills. So you need knowledge to gain knowledge in reading. But of course, reading is one of the primary ways that you gain that knowledge. So if you're lucky and you're born to privilege and a constant, <laughs> constant stream of knowledge and information, uh, that may work, work really well for you. And if you're not blessed with a deep well of, a deep reserve of content knowledge at the outset, raises the problem of how do you how do you and how do your teachers strategically build the knowledge you need over time to gain knowledge it's kind of a chicken and the egg problem yeah so this challenge of building background knowledge is something that folks like ed hirsch have been writing about for some time now one of the things that's really exciting about your book i think is that it doesn't just regurgitate these challenges but also provides a ton of practical strategies for addressing them that's really the focus so can you tell us a bit about the advice you offer teachers about how to help students overcome this knowledge deficit? Yeah, so increasing the amount of nonfiction uh, that our students read is not only important for increasing background knowledge, uh, but it's also important in preparing students to read the types of tests that they encounter in college. You know, before Common Core, when we think about a K-12 experience, students probably read 70 to 80 percent fiction, if not more. But yet in college, unless you're an English major, you read usually 70 to 80 percent nonfiction. So it's important that we expose our students uh, to more nonfiction text, not only with the goal of increasing uh, increasing background knowledge, but also to support them being successful in college. And one of the one of the one of our favorite ideas in the book, and I'm glad that you've chosen this uh, for your for your website, is uh, that you can actually embed nonfiction within a fiction text in order to increase absorption rate. So, for instance, one of our favorite examples of this actually comes from Colleen's classroom when she was reading The Outsiders with her, with her students. Uh, this is arguably a text that students are actually pretty familiar with the background knowledge required to read the text. So she used this as an opportunity to increase background knowledge in a unique way by pairing it with an article on the hierarchy of bull elephants. And so students were then exposed to uh, a unique article and also unique knowledge in order to kind of unlock the synergies of the nonfiction and the fiction text. We call that kind of embedding outside the bullseye. Typically, you can also embed inside the bullseye where you would uh, embed a series of nonfiction articles that are actually related to the fictional text in order to increase their background knowledge of it. Not only increase their background knowledge, but then also increase both a teacher as well as student's interest in the text as well. So just so we all understand, help us understand the connection between the outsiders and, was it bull elephants? Colleen, I'll let you explain more. Sure. So the, the connection was um, that basically that the um, social interactions of these bull elephants um, they actually um, had male bonding routines and rituals uh, similar to human beings. And so because we were reading a book, um, you know, because we were reading The Outsiders about two rival gangs and we could look at the social interactions of these two particular groups of males, then we could look at how they actually paralleled the social interactions uh, within the, that scientists had observed within bull elephants. I was just going to jump in to add a couple of things that are really, I think, savvy about what Colleen did. First of all, her students got to read 
a summary of primary field research about you know what a scientist was doing in Africa studying elephants. And not, so not only did they get a chance to read a really challenging nonfiction text, student, you know, students get, don't get to read much scientific or enough certainly scientific literature. And so there's a great opportunity. But it also kind of raises implicitly the question, well, why would someone want to do this kind of research? And the answer is because it helps us understand the interactions between all species, including people. And so uh, it makes it more engaging. And, I, you know, I think it's pretty clear that the students in that class read the article on bull elephants with much more engagement and more learning and knowledge absorption than they would have if they just try and if they just read it like we read nonfiction in most classrooms, which is a lot of teachers knowing they have to read nonfiction, they do a nonfiction unit. And so we read an article today about the American Revolution and an article tomorrow about the naked mole rat. And we look at the subheadings and the captions and how the articles are structured, and we talk about them from a structuralist standpoint. And it's not a particularly engaging way to... Nonfiction is not necessarily that intuitive to... uh, It's not as intuitive to students as narrative structure, which they're exposed to all the time in their lives, even outside their reading. And so teaching nonfiction in this sort of nonfiction unit isolated from stories like The Outsiders, which can connect to it, kind of guarantees low return from the reading. And I think so I think part of what's so powerful about Pauline's approach to embedding nonfiction here is that both texts got richer. The Elephant's text and The Outsiders got richer by the comparison, and kids probably learned more because they were so engaged while reading a really challenging scientific text. So what are some other key strategies teachers can use to build students' background knowledge so that they can become stronger readers? So one of the things that we think is really important is just for teachers to make the most of fiction. Uh, We understand that with um, changes in the Common Core and with um, shifts in the SAT, we know that there's a renewed emphasis and focus on reading nonfiction. Um, but we also know that English and literacy teachers love their fiction, as we do. And so what we encourage teachers to do is just to think about how to make the most of this fiction that they're reading with their students. And so one way to do that is to think strategically about the, um, excuse me, the fiction text that you choose to read with your students. And so... If I'm a fourth-grade teacher and I'm choosing between Bridge to Terabithia and Number the Stars, they're both beautiful books, certainly worth reading. But if I'm thinking about building background knowledge for my students, then I might get more bang for my buck if I choose to read Number the Stars because it's a rich historical context. And that's not to say that teachers should always be reading historical fiction. Historical fiction is fantastic, but I think that we want to always keep Whatever fiction we're reading, we want to think about what are the opportunities to build real-world background knowledge in the reading of this book. But also just maximizing the questions that you ask during reading. Um, So a lot of times in in reading classes, we tend to ask skill-based questions or questions about character. But it's important not to overlook the moments when there are references to real people that have lived or real events that have occurred and to drill down on those and to ask students how those compare, how the portrayal in the book actually compares to what happened in real life in order to help them to solidify some of the background knowledge uh, that comes into play in fiction text. Maybe I thought I'd just tell a quick story here because one of the interesting things about the book is that you know, we're all parents in addition to educators. And so a lot of this book is filtered through our thoughts about our own children's education and learning to read, and there's a lot of actually reading with our children in the course of, of writing the book and reflecting on it. And one of the epiphanies for me was reading, a, re, you know, there's reading historical fiction and there's getting the most out of historical fiction. So I was 
uh, my daughter was reading a historical fiction book about the Civil War, uh, and I sat down to read it with her a little bit, and she read me a passage. And it, was, it was interesting because I wanted to ask her some questions about it, and I started to ask her the kind of character motivation questions that Colleen was outlining. But then it struck me that you know, there are all these questions about the historical context, like there was a soldier who was dying of disease that I could ask her that reinforced the historical fiction. How is, how is what this soldier is dying of typical or atypical of the experience of soldiers in the American Civil War? Uh, and so my daughter happened to know, because we talked about it, that uh, it was actually fairly typical that more soldiers died of disease than they did of combat. And so it just struck me that asking we tend to think of only skill-based questions, and skill-based questions are, are useful and important, but so are knowledge-based questions. If we're going to invest in reading a, historical, a book of historical fiction, actually asking about the historical context, how the book reflects on it, distorts it, changes it, challenges it, are equally important, and uh, especially given how much we know about the importance of knowledge base. But sometimes we overlook asking those questions or feel like those questions are cheap, and uh, I certainly don't think they're cheap anymore. Now, your book is called Reading Reconsidered, but you also devote a good bit of time and space to helping teachers help students become strong writers. Why do you do that, and how are reading and writing skills related? So we think um, we think that it's actually hard um, to separate reading and writing skills in order to be able to unpack the complex sentences that an author has wrote. It helps um, if you are able to craft, if you understand what it takes to craft those same kinds of sentences yourself. And so in, in researching for this book, we've just realized in me, certainly as a former reading teacher, I think I overlooked the importance of writing instruction. But I uh, learned the hard way lots of times that without that solid foundation of writing instruction, it was really hard for my students, as I said, not only to deconstruct the sentences that other people wrote, but then to understand the intentionality that went into choosing words, into the structural arrangement of the sentence. And so that's where we started to think about it, in addition to just the idea that um, one of the emphases of the Common Core um, and on the SAT is to and for students to be able to write directly from a text. And so we thought it was important to spend time studying how to help teachers be, how to help reading teachers in helping students be more successful writers. Thanks. Now, your book covers a huge amount of ground, much more than we can cover in this conversation. But I'm wondering if I can conclude by asking each of you to identify maybe one big idea that came as a surprise to you as you researched the book perhaps something that challenges the conventional wisdom about reading instruction that you'd want listeners to understand. Uh, we started the conversation today about uh, background knowledge, and I think a critical aspect of background knowledge is also vocabulary. And as Doug mentioned, we've done a lot of reading with our own kids, and uh, one of the ideas we talk about in our book are two ways of increasing vocabulary is through both explicit instruction, the deep study of one word at a time as a class, as well as implicit instruction, how do you support vocabulary acquisition while students are reading, which is actually a critical time and a critical way of building their vocabulary. And uh, we've just, in the book, we talk about a variety of ways, and we've studied a lot of great teachers who support 
the acquisition of vocabulary during reading, whether it's through jotting a note or dropping in a definition or doing a little bit of practice during reading with a particular word. And this is one of the techniques in the book that I, I have found most useful with my own kids as I read with them. I think for me, um, as I just uh, mentioned, the, the power of writing and the importance of intentional writing instruction in a reading class. And so one of my favorite ideas that I think all reading teachers can incorporate, can and should incorporate daily, as well as other uh, subject area teachers, is this idea of art of the sentence. And so really focusing on the fundamental building block of writing, the sentence, in thinking about teaching students how to significantly increase the quality of their sentences uh, by modeling for them and then giving them practice with sophisticated sentence structures, sophisticated sentence starters, and the power that that has on helping them to become better readers, uh, especially better close readers. I've got to ask then, does that mean that we should be diagramming sentences? <laughs> it's a great question. Um, Maybe, sometimes. Um, we don't actually talk about that um, as one of the, the tools that we recommend, um, but I think that having that strong uh, grammatical foundation and then the shared language, I think certainly can only help and support our students. Doug, how about you? What do you want listeners to understand? I think I have a, <clears throat> I realized in the course of writing this book that I have a passion for oral reading and and the power of oral reading, and I think it's underestimated in our classrooms, that when you read aloud to children, several things happen. Not only do you introduce them to text of complex that's more complex than they can decode on their own, and so they not only develop an ear for sophisticated vocabulary, but they develop an ear for sophisticated syntax, which is often a challenge for them in decoding. But you introduce them to great ideas ahead of their ability to decode them on their own. That enthusiasm and impact and builds in them a passion for reading. You know, I started asking about the question of, of joy and love for reading. If all we ever do is give kid, kids books that are on their level and don't challenge them, particularly the weakest readers will never come to understand how they'll never be given the greatest texts and the stories that changed our lives and the stories that should change their lives, and they will never really understand why reading is so deeply important and so deeply motivating and why it's beautiful and joyful. So I think that reading aloud to kids is, is under us. A teacher once said to us in one of our workshops that she lived in fear when she read aloud to her class because she was worried an administrator would walk in and think that she wasn't teaching. And then beyond this notion of, of teachers reading aloud, there is deep power in students reading aloud in the classroom. And most teachers are, are socialized never to read aloud in class, to have a pejorative name for it, popcorn reading. But there is something deeply powerful about hearing a classroom of your peers breathe life into a text by reading it with passion and understanding and inflection and seeing, and instead of thinking when you're reading silently, I wonder if anyone cares about this book, seeing that every other kid in the class loves this book, wants to bring it to life, enjoys it, is relishing the fiction and the words and the story. So uh, to me, you know, there are, Students need to read silently, for sure. It's the way they'll do most of their reading in their lives and their profession. But there's also a place for oral reading by teachers and oral reading by students in the classroom that I think, for me, has been slightly overlooked. And certainly the Lamar children are getting heavy doses of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Doug, Colleen, and Erica, I think uh, your answers there just highlighted the insight that you all have into the reading process and also the passion that you bring to this question, this challenge of figuring out reading. Congratulations on the new book, and thank you very much for spending some time with us this afternoon. Thanks, Marty. We really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Thank you for tuning in to Education Next's weekly podcast, released every Wednesday morning. For more on education reform, visit us online, educationnext.org.